Hello and welcome to Clinical Conversations podcast by Royal College of Physicians Edinburgh. My name is Dr Adeline McLeod, I'm an SG6 in geriatrics and I'm the chair of the trainee and members group. Today we have Alicia Karner who is an F1 working down in London and I'd like her to introduce herself. Hi, um, yes I'm Alicia, I'm well, I've just, just qualified as an F2, but I, I was um, an F1 in Hastings um, in East Sussex. So I've had a, a year of a bit of coronavirus over that, and I've now moved into London um, and working at Tom, St. Thomas's Hospital. Um, yeah, I, I grew up in Newcastle and I went to Edinburgh Medical School, um, graduated two years ago now, which feels like just yesterday. Um, and yeah, I've had, I've had a, a good proper experience I guess of F1 um quite far away from home so yeah Yeah. um and the reason we're really talking today um was uh because you wrote an opinion piece uh based on your experiences in elderly care that got forwarded to me which I thought was really quite interesting um would you just for people who won't have seen the piece would you be able to just summarize um what what your thoughts were and, and what led you to write that piece um, yeah, sure. So, so I was working in, in Hastings um, and as an F1, obviously we have the rotation. So I had um, kind of acute medicine block for the first four months. And then I moved on to geriatrics uh, for four months, which because of coronavirus and we didn't, we didn't get to rotate into the third rotation. Um, I ended up actually staying on, on geriatrics placement for eight months. Um, and I have a, a really strong interest in public health. So I, I suppose that's what I hope to pursue um, in medicine. And, and I, was, I was quite interested in, in the way that the medicine changed with, um, with elderly care in, in, those, in those eight months when a lot was changing kind of around us. Um, so I wrote some of my observations, I suppose, um, into a piece which Adeline has read. Um, and it just, it, it was more of a, it was interesting because I suppose a lot of it, you know, a lot about being in medicine in the acute healthcare setting is about, you know, patients coming in from GP settings or the community or kind of referrals or, or you know, being found in the community, I suppose, paramedics. There's loads of different entry points for people coming into hospital. Um, and in a geriatrics ward, sort of, it seems that, you know, in a really fast paced hospital where you think everything's quite busy and there's, there's scans and there's tests and there's, there's monitoring, it feels sometimes quite still. Um, and not to say that there's not much happening, but it's, I think with that demographic of, of age group, it's difficult to see kind of those fast results and that fast improvement that we we're expected to, or the things that you kind of, you anticipate, um, that happens in acute hospitals. Um, so I suppose it was, it was interesting just to see, you know, these people are here. It's a, it's they stay for sometimes a few days to sometimes over a week because recovery and illness is a little bit slower in elderly people and it just struck me a little bit about you know whether we're doing the most we can and whether this is really the right place for elderly people to be um yeah i just just um just because i think a lot of the interventions are kind of for a you know a fast turnaround and I think that's not an expectation that's necessarily reasonable in elderly people um and it just it just made me think whether the resources that we have which are obviously finite whether they're really kind of being used appropriately in in hospital settings and that became a lot more 
of the focus in COVID, I suppose, when there was a, you know, awareness on, on the strain of resources. So do you think that hospitals have been designed around the needs of our elderly population? Or do you think that we are not necessarily um, through, through design, through our systems, meeting their needs? I think, yeah, I think that's probably the crux of it. I think a lot of the, a lot of the hospital medicine is based around kind of, you know, the, the treatments and things which can have quite a fast turnaround so that we can send people back home and it's an in-out, in-out system. Um, and whether, whether sort of the pathways in the communities are, are designed such that the hospital is kind of, you know, the, the place where everyone almost ends up, you know, the GPs can't access the scan, so they refer to hospital. Um, the community nurses or the occupational therapists don't have the equipment, so they send people to hospital and to, rather, rather than sort of hospital being that, you know, a bit more of a difficult to access place where it's just for an acute, you know, turnaround. Not, not to say that people should be kind of put in and pushed out of hospital quickly, but I think when, you, when you're working in there for a prolonged time, you can see the deconditioning that we actually do and we cause harm, which is really, you know, the opposite of, of what you want as a, as a clinician, as a healthcare worker. So I think, I think it's, it's that it's, it doesn't optimise kind of care for, for that generation. And I think, you know, I do think you do raise quite a few good points there. Um, through my experience, and, and I actually think things are slightly, I think the pendulum, the pendulum is starting to swing the other way now. But I suppose my experience is that hospitals are set up and organized around you have one problem with one organ system you come in and you see a specialist for that organ system they fix the problem and then you're out again and I just don't think that that works for people who are elderly um, who are older and actually probably have problems with lots of different systems um you know they may have a pneumonia but then also their kidneys start uh, not working so well because of the pneumonia and um i also am concerned that we have potentially become a bit too specialized i know from a medical education point of view we are addressing that um in terms of the new internal medicine curriculum being more general um and i know that health education england recently um have put out opinion pieces and documentation about the role of the future doctor very much focused on doctors becoming generalists generalists through the um edu- you know through through the curriculum postgraduate curriculum but also teaching general skills at medical school as well um and i wonder whether whether uh, as medical education changes becoming more generalist we'll start to see that in our hospital hospital uh policies and and systems um, and the way hospitals operate do you think that that would be welcome welcome changes yeah definitely I think I think it's almost difficult because now like you're saying everything's so specialized so sort of the the problems fall on one one person for a specific you know we we look to the the physiotherapist in the last three days of the admission of okay could you make sure this person can walk to the end of the bed and to the toilet and if they're fine they can go home um, and they're sort of, you know, and that's, that's, you know, it's part of their discharge planning, but it's not there during the length of their stay. And it's, it's really, 
it's not there in the community, I think. And that's probably where, where the downfall is. So when we see a patient and they look frail and they look unwell and you can identify that, I think just as a human, you can identify that um, rather than as a medic or something specialized, but kind of getting on top of that is very difficult. Um, and often, you know, in the pressure and the busyness of the day, you can see that difficult kind of slower problems are the ones that are pushed aside. I think, you know, we can treat the pneumonia, we can give the antibiotics, probably can't get them to walk up a, a flight of stairs and when you think about what sort of which one has the bigger impact or the quality of life is I think where the investment is doesn't really reflect um, the problem. Yeah no absolutely um, I can treat somebody's pneumonia with antibiotics but if they don't walk um, at the end of that because um, they've been really unwell and they're frail and they've had you know um, muscle loss because of their their illness um, and also because they're frightened and they're scared and they're anxious because they might have had a fall that brought them into hospital and then they've had because they had a chest infection and I see it all the time and um, I think from my experience in the northeast I suppose it's slightly different to yours um, the patients in the trust that I have worked across in the Northeast generally would see a physiotherapist within the first 24 hours of them being admitted. Um, there's been campaigns such as end pajama paralysis that were quite prevalent on the ward. We do encourage people to get dressed and to eat meals, you know, sat out of bed. Mm. Um, and that's again, in order to prevent any deconditioning that, that, that can happen when people do get unwell. Um, but I suppose, you know, we do, potentially need to think about funding within the community i know our gp colleagues see about 90 percent of patient interactions and they definitely do not get 90 percent of the funding mm. um, and also looking at um early intervention before things become critical before people have a crisis at home and um, getting getting the resources to the people the right resources to the people at the right time i suppose is would be the would be the absolute goal yeah I, th I think um, it was it was it was particularly interesting when um, I think towards the start of the placement we we found you know we would do the medical bits so you know treat the pneumonia or or treat the you know they would have their um, fractures you know seen by orthopedics and sort of that kind of medical intervention which should happen immediately happened um, and then there was a bit of discharge planning and I think it was amazing how long sort of the social care side of things took place because obviously when they're in hospital it's a perfect time to find out you know are they coping at home so many of them clearly weren't coping at home and like you're saying they'd reached that crisis point which had brought them into the hospital and that was the perfect time to kind of intervene and address those issues but I think what was happening is during that intervention period where we were choosing you know where where's the funding for the resettlement kind of which which pathway do they go down for discharge planning all these all these things that I think you know, the nurses and the doctors don't really get involved in because we've done our bit in that sense. And the, you know, the social care and, the, you know, the discharge planning, that, that, those two seems, seems a bit fragmented um, and limited, I suppose, by funding and things. And, and then you have patients who end up staying, just waiting for their social care package. And you think, well, upstairs, there's probably people coming into A&E who can't have a bed because we've got somebody who's kind of medically fit waiting then on a long stay to go home. And then when coronavirus hit and there was a lot more funding, a lot more attention to getting people out of this high risk area, which is the hospital, it was amazing the turnaround of patients, you know, less patients obviously were coming in, which 
is a separate issue. But in terms of patients leaving, it was it was incredible to see, you know, suddenly there's spaces in nursing homes and suddenly there's kind of all these packages of people being able to offer package of care and assistance. Um, so I think I think when you can see that there is perhaps room for intervention in the community that's just that we're just not aware of in the hospital um, to kind of increase patient flow and get them to somewhere where they can be independent. I suppose that's, that's the difficulty. Yeah. I mean, I remember back in the early days of, of uh, coronavirus as well, just how hard our community colleagues worked um, yeah. to get people home. They were absolutely phenomenal I've never seen my social work colleagues work so hard the care providers um, were absolutely you know we're in this together we can do uh, we can support this that obviously was coupled with um, an increase in funding and I suppose I agree with you my concern is as things settle back down to normal um, making sure we we keep up that can-do um attitude and also making sure that we uh keep up the kind of collegiate working that really did did come come about due to covid um my concern slightly is um the nursing home situation um the 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 deaths that happened in nursing homes um the financial position that nursing homes are in right now and the absolutely um, understandable caution that they now have when they're taking new patients directly from the hospital. Obviously, some of that caution, you know, we are um, addressing with with swab testing and people have a test, um, especially in the northeast, before they do go to their new nursing home. Um, and that is alleviating some of the fears. But I remember speaking to a colleague of mine who said, you know, we, we have to support the, the nursing homes because... You know, at the end of the day, if every, if all of them fold, then we have nowhere for people to go who need that level of that level of care. Um, and so, yeah, no, it was kind of great to see at the time. And I suppose the hope is there that uh, that that work continues out in the community. Um, because I agree with you. I agree that you know, if you need to be in hospital and you need hospital treatment, there are safe places. But when you don't need that level of of medical input anymore, I think getting out back into your community back home has definite benefits as well. So one thing that that came across in your in your piece was, um, I suppose, a sense that you'd really observed that some of your patients had been quite socially isolated. I just wondered if you could expand on that a bit more. Um. Yeah. Sure. So, I th- I think it was a lot a lot to do with you know on our ward rounds and. And when we would go as a team and say, you know, this, this is the plan, explain it to the patient and kind of promise them the outcome of, you know, in a couple of days, should be, should be back to baseline, should be getting better and you, you can go home. And that was often met with quite a, quite a kind of sad response, I suppose. People weren't, weren't excited about the idea of going home and it wasn't really a one-off. There were quite a few patients who often they seemed that home wasn't wasn't where they wanted to be. And it made me wonder, what are we offering here in an environment which is quite sterile and, and you know, people are busy around them. They're not getting a lot and lot of social interaction. It's just, you know, the food is quite basic. The, you know, the beds aren't, I never think look particularly comfortable, I suppose. Um, 
and you know what why why are they not rushing to go back home where they have their own things and they have you know they can walk around and they can you know be with their family and friends and and I think it makes you realize that it's probably not their reality um for, for a lot of elderly people they're living in these houses alone uh without you know without meals prepared for them and without kind of shopping as a as a really big endeavor and going you know simple tasks are, are challenges so I suppose you know, and, and keeping them independent, we, we've seen that and there's so much evidence that keeping people independent and active is actually kind of beneficial from a health perspective, uh, a longevity perspective. So I suppose it's it's that trade-off of what what can we offer them in their own homes to make them less lonely? Because that's, that's not easy to treat. And I think that's that's affecting them a lot more than the medical issues that they come yeah. in with. And that- and I completely agree with that. So um, uh, a little while ago when I was a, a bit of a younger registrar, um, I think I maybe looked into this a couple of years ago, um, I found the same. So people were in hospital and you would say, right, you're off home. And often that was met with, um, but, you know, like I get conversation here and I get to speak to people here. And so I looked into it a little bit more Um and it's actually quite sad, um, the situation quite a few people do find themselves in with loneliness. And it's not necessarily just uh, an issue with our elderly population, but I suppose it's um, a, a slightly a bigger issue with our, uh, with our elderly population because I think towns and cities and social spaces are less accessible to them um because of you know because of the problems they may have with arthritis or not being able to drive anymore and not being as independent and so i read a really really sad statistic that about 500,000 older people spend christmas day alone um oh. and when i and i when i read that i was i was so sad and the definition um, of social isolation is actually um, not seeing anyone uh, within seven days. So if you spend seven days without seeing another human being, then you are kind of socially isolated. And I felt that that's quite a big, <laughs> you know, if I went seven days without seeing anybody, I'd be incredibly uh, sad and I'd feel quite vulnerable with that. Yeah. Um, when I looked at the research, about a million people are alone or lonely most days um, and utilize telly as their main sources of, 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 uh, of, of just having someone else, something else in the house. Um, and social isolation is linked to Alzheimer's disease. And I think one statistic I read was it's as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Gosh. Yes. So how do you feel now um, about your experience based, based on the, the sort of data that, that I've given you? I feel like we definitely need to do more. <laughs> I just, I feel like if there's this much evidence behind it, and I, I, suppose, I suppose half the problem with, with things like loneliness and, um, you know, social isolation, the fact that it's not as tangible, I suppose, as you know, you can't quantify it in the same way as disease makes it harder to target interventions to. And it makes you can't, it... you can't do an ECG and say you're socially isolated and this is your <laughs> uh, 15, you know, your risk of mortality, but it actually does 
have um, being isolated does actually increase your mortality, uh, which okay. is really interesting. We don't necessarily talk about it in terms of healthcare, um, but obviously from a public health point of view, has huge has huge impacts. It's amazing how those two things also intertwined it's, it's difficult to because i i appreciate i think from medical sphere and medicine's come a long way in terms of you know now there is social prescribing i think the long-term plan is looking at how we can how we can kind of contract out rehabilitation units and how how can we make nursing homes safer and friendlier and and, and there's, a, there's a lot more effort being made in sort of a community intervention way but i think I think it's difficult it's it's difficult but it's um it's it's really about appreciating the kind of the disparity and and the overlap I suppose between medical interventions you know being medicine uh, versus kind of social interventions because they do have health benefits uh, and health consequences and I suppose it's whose responsibility it falls on um and how much we can do but I think these things need to be a bit more in our program because anyone who's seeing it and anyone who's we're, we're quite privileged to have have the ability to see it di impacting directly and so I suppose to not do anything about it is feels wrong. I don't think that social isolation within this country is on the national agenda as it should be um, I think that we do need to do more. Yeah I, th I think if there was a, kind of the same enthusiasm you know put into sort of addressing isolation addressing kind of what we can do for that elderly vulnerable population looking into factors that make them vulnerable sort of before just identifying them as vulnerable looking at why they are vulnerable and what we can do as as to change those things i think that i think that is missing probably yeah. in the agenda. and and it's missing because it's hard and it takes big society um but we we have done it um so the the huge steps that we've made in terms of improving the access for um less abled people um with the movements in the 90s and actually actually securing rights um for people who are uh, differently abled um that's been really positive um i love the fact that the paralympics now has pretty much i would say the same standing um as the able-bodied olympics and that's absolutely fantastic and i suppose we just need the will to really as a society say these people are members of society they've contributed to our society for years they have lives they have pasts they've been um you know full of vitality they just need a bit of extra help we should be we should be off we should be offering that and you know it's especially acute i think for rural communities with the lack of bus um transport um the lack of access to to good food if they can only rely on a corner shop but corner shops are shutting down um and and all of these difficulties people have because i think as a society in general the uk is very much geared towards uh younger people i would say mm, i agree um interestingly a friend of mine grace did a phd research in tanzania looking at frailty um and they very much have a society where it is ex um elder people are actually integral part of the society and it's just actually um expected that at some point you would be looking after an elder member of society um and they just uh, her reflections where they just don't see frailty the same way they don't really have frailty as a vocabulary it's just that um 
these people are part of the community and that this is just what they do but they still contribute to that community because their opinions are really valued they are looked on as advisors they're looked on as confidants and things like that and so they're still very active whereas I think the way we live in the UK the way we live out we are quite isolated from our neighbors there aren't those opportunities for people to play that role in society I yeah I can I can really relate to that I think because we have a lot of family in India and I think the you know the the difference between the way my grandma is sort of she lives at home with with her sons and there's a lot more kind of communication interaction she she often would look after the grandchildren I mean sure she can't take them out for walks and things but just just sort of in the house and they play with her and you know they would very 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 dearly miss her I suppose in a in a way that is different I think to how probably how I've been brought up a little bit in the UK I suppose because it's you know we don't have the same kind of culture of joint families here and I suppose we don't have we we don't have the same integration I think is is fair to say uh in in the UK and I mean it maybe it's just the way that our society and our culture has evolved um because it was at one point that way but I think it's there's a possibility it's evolved too much and there's a it's quite difficult to rein it in a little bit to to you know with people working abroad and people moving from home to to kind of pursue their own you know pursuits I suppose um and I think family is is often it takes a back seat and it's that's a bit more accepted and and it makes it more difficult to kind of we we then rely on the state to subsidize kind of what family would have been doing um a couple of generations ago um and I suppose we're kind of bridging that gap is is tricky really really tricky yeah I think you know so so my background is um my grandmother's Spanish um and so again I go back home well go back to Spain and, and, and see a slightly different um, culture in terms of um, and, it, and it's different because the climate is different but often you walk around the streets and there are elderly people sat outside their house um, shouting at the you know kids running past or just you know chatting to the adults as they go past and they're still kind of participating in society um, it's difficult in this country country I get it because the 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 weather's a lot colder <laughs> um, the climate's different but I suppose we also have much more of a culture of the nuclear family um, and children growing up leaving the home and not necessarily returning um, so there are those cultural differences and I suppose it's just as a society how we bridge that gap because there is a need there um, and I suppose it's, it's working through that as, as a culture and as a society Mm. um but it's interesting so what I often uh what I often do in my practice for my most abled elder (laughs) patients when I see them is um I actually start talking about planning for for older age um and I do discuss things like keeping up with friends and friendships forming friendships with younger people to actually give them a bit of a perspective but also to combat loneliness in older age um finding things to do in their local community and just actually staying engaged um there's a really good quote from um george bernard shaw that comes to mind which is that we do not cease to play because we grow old we grow old because we cease to play 
Um, yeah um, and that's you know something that I do try and uh, I do sometimes try and have these discussions with the people that I meet and people around me um I'm lucky I have um oh I have friends of all sorts of age groups some are in their 80s and they're still very vibrant and living independently and all of that um but I do have quite a range of age groups in my friendship um in my friendship groups as well that's lovely <laughs> So I think on that note, we've probably uh, discussed the world, the universe, and it's taken us places we didn't expect. <laughs> we didn't stick to any script there. We did not stick to any script, but that is fine. That is fine. Was there anything else you wanted to, to, to discuss or say? Or No, I really enjoyed that. Thank you so much. So... Um, Thank you very much, Alicia Karner, uh, for talking to me today about social isolation, the elderly, public health approaches to elderly care. Um, I wish you all the best in your future career. Um, please keep in touch with Royal College Edinburgh. I would love to hear from you again. Definitely. Thank you for having me.